0: Welcome to Rethinking Neurodiversity, a podcast looking at the history, triumphs and challenges of divergent thinking. We're your hosts, Fran and Ling, and together we'll be talking to neurodivergent advocates, experts, and those with lived experience to rethink the narrative
1: around neurodiversity. This podcast is brought to you by Noetic Health, the intelligent neurodiversity app for adult ADHD, autism, dyslexia, and dyspraxia.
0: In this episode, we talk to Toomey Sotir, also known as the Black Dyspraxic. We talk about intersectionality within neurodiversity, from race and gender to geography and different neurodivergences, and Toomey also discusses dyspraxia and how he's used his strengths
1: to build his impressive career. Hi Toomey! Great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing?
2: I'm really good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Noetic is doing incredible things Mm -hmm. and I'm so happy that you've had me on this podcast. How are you?
1: Thank you, we're good, just busy. Yeah, really excited to to speak with you today. Can you give us um, a little intro into who you are and uh, what made you first interested in the neurodiversity space?
2: Okay, so hello everyone. My name is Timmy Sotir. I am a research assistant who works at Newcastle University in health economics. I was diagnosed with dyspraxia at the age of four and I think my re- my understanding with dyspraxia, should I say, um, started at such such an early age. I often tell people that before I realized I was black, I knew I was dyspraxic. I just knew that was different. And so everywhere I went, whether in school or in local churches through uni, I would always tell people about my experiences and advocate about dyspraxia. And I think this got a lot more when I was at 16. All through high school, I got bullied a lot. And I went through a situation where of severe mental distress, to the point that I had to be taken out of school for a year. And I think I was 16 at the time. I was called awful names such as retard and spastic, just really, really horrible. But through that, during that season, I got more involved in actually coming to terms with my dyspraxia and finding charities like the Dyspraxia Foundation. And I remember going as a teenager with my parents and really at that age, I got a reassessment of like my needs and everything like that. And that really, really helped me and really catapulted me to A-levels and uni. So at the beginning of uni, before even universities started, I was able to have disability student allowance, which allowed me to get printers and assistive technology and everything. And this was 2010, 2010 to 2011 times. So I've I've been talking about it and, you know, been advocating in this space ever since. What happened in 2019, I was toying up with the idea of starting a page or b- b- becoming online. And I was toying with the idea of calling myself the Black Dyspractic, which I am now. But this idea was crystallised, was so I say catalyzed in 2019 when I went to an event hosted by the Diverse Creators CIC in October 2019. And they were um, had an event at CAST Business called, called Through the Lens. And Remy Ray, the founder, literally put on LinkedIn that they were looking for a male panellist to join the discussion on being Black and dyslexic. And, and so my my friend at the time said, Okay, this is to do with dyslexia, but you have dyslexia. Maybe you should reach out. And I got in contact with the with the with the organizer, and we linked. And she invited me down. But I kind of did a lot of promotion about that event, and maybe and like fifteen to twenty members of my friends and family, my nearest and dearest, came to that event. I really loved the energy, just speaking about my lived experience. And this was October twenty nineteen, and the Black Dyslexic was born. And since then I've done a range of advocacy. I've sat on the boards of many organizations such as Noetic. And now I'm here today.
0: Well, thanks for sharing to me. Sorry to hear that um, you had quite a tough time at school, but it's it's really nice to hear that you're now involved with those organizations that you found during that period of your life. And we first actually were introduced to you when we saw you speaking at an event back in March, maybe? Feb, March? In Birmingham. In Birmingham, yeah. And we, we thought you were absolutely brilliant. And you were talking about, well, intersectional neurodiversity and thinking about dyspraxia through an intersectional lens, which is also the topic of today's podcast. So we were wondering whether you could start off by telling us a little bit about what what's actually meant by intersectionality.
2: Yes, so uh, intersectionality... I think a really good way of thinking about it is what do Americans know as the intersection? So an intersection is normally what we would in the UK call a T-junction. And so when you think about a T-junction, there's two roads coming together. They're often perpendicular, so coming at right angles, so coming in different directions, but they meet. In other words, they intersect, they come together. And that's what we call an intersection or a T-junction. So when we talk about intersectionality we're talking about two social identities coming together it could be race it could be gender it could be religion it can be age it can be sexual orientation but when one of these two social identities they meet they in and they intersect that is what was called intersectionality and it's a framework to help us to understand that there are some people that get marginalized and left out in important discussions i think For us to hammer home the point, we can think about, okay, who coined the term intersectionality? It was Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, an African-American legal scholar, that realised that her experience as an African-American woman was uniquely different to white women and African-American males. There was something that was uniquely different, and that was a the term intersectionality was coined.
1: Quite- That's fascinating and it really it does highlight a unique relationship that each of your identities contribute towards in your life. We all experience different levels of oppression and privilege or marginalization and privileges and understanding how each of them play into our day-to-day lives is is also a part of intersectionality, am I am I right?
2: Yes, completely. So this is why I often say that a white middle class male is still involved in this conversation about intersectionality because intersectionality, even though you know society, i rightly so there's a lot of privilege associated with white, they're still involved in it because intersectionality allows us to categorize. Intersectionality just ensures that no one gets left behind, they, because sometimes, unfortunately, especially in the West, without intersectionality, we can make policies or create initiatives that just caters to the majority, and the majority are mostly those people of privilege, and forget, actually, there are people that still need to be catered to. That's why it's really important, especially to include minorities, to have this word, intersectionality. Case in point, if you just looked at okay, how do we help ethnic minorities and how do we help black people, but we forget that actually there's class, or there's there's disability, or there's sexual orientation, we could you could be like oh yeah, we've helped the, loads of black people get into Oxbridge, but all the people that we've black people that we helped into Oxbridge come from middle class and above socioeconomic backgrounds, so. Have we really, really helped or improved the problem when there's still a lot of black people that are missed out because what we have we've missed out class? Or actually if we if we do this for for Muslims, actually a lot of Muslim men attend to this, but we've actually missed out Muslim women. And so intersectionality ensures it's a, it's a caveat and it's a framework that ensures that we remember each and every one of us. It's difficult, it's messy, it's challenging, but so important because you can't really achieve EDI or advanced neurodiversity or anything like that without intersectionality at its core. That's what I believe.
1: That's so true. And I think uh, something that Kim Crenshaw-Lee referred to was this idea of centering the margins and the more layers of stigmatization or marginalization you experience they kind of they compound each other and further marginalize you and so if we can bring to the center the people who have experienced multiple forms of marginalization and if we can cater to their needs then we can cater better cater to to everyone's needs because centering the margins does benefit everyone Exactly
2: but unfortunately it's the people in the majority of people that are not in the in the margins They're the policymakers, they're the fund makers, they're the leaders. And so for this to work, we need people in the majority to understand that intersectionality is important. And we need to do more to, as you say, center the margins. I'm sorry, there's an ice cream van in the background.
1: (laughs) There were. There's always, there's always a WhatsApp ding or a, or an ice cream van driving past um, for not working, which is very, <laughs> very convenient for a podcast. Yeah. Following on from what you said to me, it's really important to have that intersectional
0: approach and that approach when you're putting people in positions of power that we should be considering different intersectionalities at that point. And then within the neurodiversity space, historically a lot of neurodiversity diversity research has been done in
1: cisgendered white males
0: really it's still being
1: done in sister i was really surprised that last week yale released or an autism study that only looked at the um autistic traits of boy
2: but it's a really important point though right and this is one of the reasons why i do what i do i've actually been to um academic conferences uh, some of the academics would say actually We want to engage with minorities. We just don't know where they are. And my response is, you're you're kidding me, right? Because on my LinkedIn, there's so many people doing so many things. But obviously, especially think about an academic that, you know, this is their job. This is the nine to five. This is what. How would they go if no one's actually connected? If no one's actually been the bridge of, you know, this is where these people are. But also in the topic of intersectionality with neurodiversity, we have to also talk about the diversity of conditions, right? Even today, a lot of neurodiversity discussions are focused on autism and ADHD. And maybe dyslexia. This is why I, I really like to bang on on dyspraxia, especially because it's my lived experience. But even with dyspraxia, you have verbal dyspraxia, you have Tourette's you have bipolar you have ocd you know there's so many other facets differences that so that someone who is neurodivergent can have that are not really talked about when we talk about neurodiversity to to the to the point that some actually some people have actually argued that they don't like the term neurodiversity for the same reasons why people don't really like the term of BAME because of the nuances so let me give you an example why people don't like BAME because for example if we looked at just to get quite political a few years ago in the Tory cabinet you know there was people like Priti Patel, Sajid Javits and quite a lot of um, Asians in the cabinet and then somebody talked about a reporter I can't remember who it was was saying how there wasn't any black people in the cabinet but then the member of parliament that was representing the Tory party was like, Yeah, there are black people. And they were mentioning Sajid Javid and 50%. And it's like, Actually, they're, they're black. not black. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I'm making that point to say that we run the danger of doing that in the neurodiversity space. Just because you create a program that caters to autistic individuals doesn't mean you've catered to dyslexic individuals because their needs are different. Yes, co-occurrences occur, but you can see that even though there's a lot of people in the space and a lot of people doing amazing things, there's a lot of things that still need to be thought about. This is why I love the title of the, of the podcast, Rethinking Neurodiversity, to actually think and engage. Okay, what are we doing and why are we doing that? And what are the outcomes that are we trying to achieve?
1: Well, it was you that helped us with that title to me, so thank you. I know. <laughs> yeah, and th- yeah, that's so true. There is intersectionality in neuro- within neurodivergence as well. Um, you know, it's it, it's seen so much as a singular thing. You're either neurodivergent or you're not, or you're either ADHD or you're autistic or you're dyslexic. And what we've learned is, so many people don't know what dyspraxia is, which is fine, but. But the fact that so many people don't know what it is, fine if you don't know what dyspraxia is as a single person, but the fact that so many people don't know what dyspraxia is and considering how many people um, are dyspraxic and possibly don't know that they are, that in itself is an issue. Um, And especially so many of the traits intersect with each other. Maybe this is a good moment to talk about what what dyspraxia is so that some people might resonate.
2: So dyspraxia is characterized by difficulties with movement. That's what the this and the Braxia means because praxia means action. So when we're talking about that, we're talking about difficulties with gross motor skills or fine motor skills. So gross motor skills may, may be like walking or running, things to do with your limbs, your arms, your legs. But fine motor skills are like your dexterity, such as eating or tying shoelaces etc but these are it's characterized but people with dyspraxia also have difficulties with emotional regulation and sequencing events and um sensitivity to to light and and sounds etc or controlling speech volumes you what you'll find is there's a lot of symptoms associated with dyspraxia that are quite similar to other neurodivergent conditions and there's a lot, co-occurrence is very high. So like 50% of dyslexia, people with dyslexia also have dyslexia, for example. To the American audience and even to Europe, the more scientific term is actually developmental coordination disorder. So as you can see, the word coordination is there. I don't really like the word disorder because it makes it, just implies that it's the medical model, which is difficulties. But that's how traditionally we characterise what this bacteria is. Um, it's something that you don't go out of. It's passed down to you genetically and stuff. But yeah, it's something that happens for you from birth. But this doesn't mean you can't do things. It just takes you a lot more time to do things. So as an adult, typing is quite difficult for me um, just because of the, the dexterity. So. Even though reading and writing even though writing my my handwriting was quite messy, typing was also quite messy, quite difficult. Um, so that's an example And another thing that the spectators may find difficult as the adults is maybe driving again because of the spatial awareness and the coordination. But we also have a lot of strengths as well. So it's such a long um, <laughs> a long um, definition, but yeah.
1: Can you can you name some of the strengths?
2: Strengths, big picture thinking, empathy, team skills, a lot of resilience as well. Really great problem resolvers. Like the difficulties and the strengths, every dyslexic is unique. So every dyspectic has a unique set of strengths and, and challenges.
0: Again, it comes from that if we're talking about intersectionality within neurodivergence there's loads of difference and there's loads of different conditions but also within dyspraxia everyone's experience is slightly different everyone although you have fit into this group that doctors have grouped it into so they can give you a diagnosis everyone still has a different experience whether that be their strengths or their challenges
2: exactly exactly i completely i completely agree with you and i'm I'm so grateful that you actually asked me what the strengths are, especially because historically we've, had, we've anchored ourselves on the medical model of disability. And a part of rethinking neurodiversity is actually, i saying the social model is actually really more important. The medical model is the, is the idea that your disability is because of you. You are impaired. There's an issue that you have to solve something that you that needs to be fixed from you the societal model of disability the social model says no it's not you it's the system it could be education it could be employment it can be criminal justice and it's the way society has molded we've 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 been we've we've done things for a certain majority and because society is made in this way it's, it's created you to be um disabled so it's not You as an individual doesn't need to be fixed. The society that needs to become more inclusive. So a really good example like for this is if we talk about climbing a, getting to the top of the building, and you say anybody that doesn't get to the top of the building up the stairs in twenty seconds, we're going to identify them as disabled. That's the medical model. Anybody that doesn't get up the stairs in twenty seconds is disabled. The social model of disability would be like but why are we using the stairs why can't we use the lift or why can't we use a plane or a helicopter and look at those other things and just say actually society is disabled because we've just used the stairs so when we talk about rethinking neurodiversity it's like where have we just used the stairs and what can we replace instead of the stairs metaphorically in society
1: And quickly jumping to your, just while it's in my head, your point about the um, autism at work programmes that some companies do. To your point about intersectionality, if you don't focus at all on intersectionality and look really myopically at employing more autistic people, then naturally what will happen is that you'll end up employing and empowering more autistic white men, straight men, cisgendered. And so that possibly come from upper socioeconomic brackets. And so it's so important to really look at the the wider picture and or widen the aperture on kind of with the demographics of people that you're looking at. It's not to say that
0: those programmes aren't important, though. Like it is just making sure that you have the internet intersectional approach within those programmes. And you're also considering other neurodivergences. And you're so right. It's not just one tick box that you need to check. Oh, we've got people who are neurodivergent. If all of those people have ADHD, for example, you're still excluding a massive group of people who are neurodivergent, but have different uh, neurodivergences.
2: It's all about equal opportunities for all. So we're not saying that white middle-class men don't deserve those jobs or those opportunities some people may be saying that but that's not what i'm saying it's about leveling the playing field for everybody so everybody has access everybody everybody is included everybody belongs everybody can ex- not just get in the door but have a seat at the table and everybody can progress in the organization everyone can lead everyone has the equal opportunity to become that CEO to actually progress through their career, and that's what and that's why intersectionality is important. Because if you just focus on one set, you forget everything, everybody else. And I think a, a really important one that people don't really talk about when we talk about intersectionality is geography, and geography in in many aspects. So geography in terms of the north and south divide in the UK. So what are services for neurodivergent people like in London compared to Newcastle where I live for example, but what are they like in Newham and Lambeth and Barkin and Dagenham compared to Kensington and Chelsea? So you can even have those variations within cities, within, within a nation, but also as someone that is a British born Nigerian, I was diagnosed with dyspraxia at the age of four because I was born in London, Greenwich Hospital, to be precise. I know if I was born in Lagos or Abuja, that would not have been the case. I would probably have been diagnosed a lot later. I wouldn't have had the support in university or access to work. So when we talk about intersectionality, especially with global companies, these variations are very important as well. So it's not just gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation. Geography is a very, very important factor to include as well.
1: Essentially, anything that puts you at an advantage or a disadvantage to the majority, be that the neuro-majority or the geographic majority of where that company is based or where they tend to hire from and you the point you made about um neurodiverse leadership as well that's so important and i think something that's being so overlooked right now although yomi um published a really great article about it today
2: that was fantastic by the way shout out to you for doing that
1: companies might well be looking at employing neurodivergent um, candidates into entry-level roles but how we, what are they equally doing to support them throughout their careers at the company and actually helping them progress because there are barriers once you enter a company to actually elevate within the company or progress within the company rather that are a result of a lack of neurodivergent support that comes from a lack of neurodivergent support or understanding.
2: I agree, but one of the things about companies that we need to understand when we unpick this, is that a lot of neurodivergent individuals, we have very, very specific strengths. The average entry role, entry-level role, requires you to be a generalist. Even, in, even middle management, you're supposed to be quite detailed orientated, you're supposed to be quite get an admin and organisation and stuff. And that's punch one, that's how you rise above and stuff. But actually, the, the key skills that I would actually move a business forward, the innovative entrepreneurship thinking, the the tenacity that the hyper function, even the empathy that, that some neurodivergent people have and emotional intelligence to lead teams that actually required in leadership. You neurodivergent know, individuals have their strengths at the very beginning but they're not really needed at graduate level they're not even really needed a minute in in middle management take me for example as a um student in exeter university in my second year i know i was dyspraxic in my first year i ran to be president of the african Caribbean society i loved it was my first time that I actually was able to tap into the unique strengths of dyspraxia. I call them strengths. They're not superpowers because I'm not superhuman. They're strengths. innovative thinking, um, empathy, my networking skills. And I was able to transform that society that, you know, it wasn't doing that well at the beginning, but our membership quadrupled. And the money that we had and the turnover that we had for over the year. And it kind of built a platform that from then, loads of other years really benefited going forward. And I was able to lead a team of eight people, really capable people to do amazing things and to make that impact. A society is like a company. It's like a business. I knew from that on that I had skills for leadership. I I went on to become president of NEMA in my fourth year which was a multinational Christian society and we had similar successes there so I already knew from as a um, undergraduate that I had possessed the skills for leadership and I enjoyed it I enjoyed sitting in board meetings I enjoyed suggesting ideas I enjoyed critiquing however Most companies, to get to that level where your ideas and your innovation in a board meeting will be relevant, you have to know how to write reports. You have to know how to critique things and read a lot of essays and just do all of these things to climb to get to the point where the skills that I possessed in my early 20s would actually be relevant. Why is that? That's what thinking about neurodiversity and leadership and business that's what we, when it comes to rethinking and how we do work that's what these are the types of things we need to think about because for example but i applied for a leadership scheme at that time and i just didn't get making it to interview just because you know the psychometric testing and all of those types of things but everything that they required to be a stem leader i already showed because with dyspraxia i did all of the extracurricular activities. And I still got my T1 at a Russell Group University in medical science. But because of the loopholes of essays or cover letters and CVs and psychometric tests and those barriers, those skill sets of being that leader wasn't able to be cultivated in companies. And those are the type of reasons why it's really important to have that those conversations about the strengths of neurodiversity in companies—massive tangent, but I think you understand what I'm saying.
1: It's so true that we need to um, understand as early as possible what someone's cognitive strengths and spikes are, and lean into those, and to provide uh, a breeding ground for those for those strengths essentially to thrive. Over time, if you're repeatedly knocked back from from applications or or job interviews, um, or you get into jobs that, you know, aren't suited to your skill set, then it starts to erode at your self-confidence and you start to wonder if you really have any strengths, but that's because you're not given the opportunity to actually showcase your strengths. And so essentially, rethinking entry-level jobs in a way, or, I mean, to go all the way back, rethinking the school system, to, to understand what an individual's strengths are because if, if someone struggles in the, the really constrictive academic system from school that also um, puts them at back foot when they when they come out of school if they even manage to come out of school
2: exactly but even not just the schools and and the entry level but the whole career pipeline why is it that there's a higher proportion of dyslexic entrepreneurs than the general population surely the greatest the richest companies in this world would benefit from that intro entrepreneurial talent in their organizations but this is why we need to rethink and we need to redesign like what would it look like to, and i know some companies do this now that we have neurodivergent big picture thinkers And you just have them, and their role is just to think and brainstorm ideas. And it's just like you try different things, and you invest, and you do things, you know. That kind of thing where you recognize that, you know, like, I'll give you an example now. I now have the benefit of sitting on a board of five organizations talking and sharing ideas and stuff like that as part of what I do with the Black Dispatic, I consult, I advise. Why? Because I've leaned into my strength. I understand that this is where I actually add value. Now, the thing about what, how we do careers and how we do employment, most organisations, if you think about the 50, 100, they're not going to employ graduates to have a seat on the decision-making table. It just doesn't work like that right now. Why not? graduate like boardroom exactly because why not because think about it as a dyspraxic as a neurodivergent person i have my mind is quite similar and all of our neurodivergent minds are quite similar to the likes of the steve jobs and the richard bronsons and all these people that have made multi multi multi-million pounds to so many people so why so companies would benefit from having people like us at the table and this is what it means to redesign and rethink how we do things and why we do things
0: you're so right it's it's shown in how many neurodivergent entrepreneurs there are they're massively overrepresented in the entrepreneur community than they are in the general population but that's because that's the kind of thing that they're drawn towards they're playing on their strengths like you said like there's they clearly are, have a lot of those strengths for those like high-powered, innovative jobs.
1: I always say that there's, that's mm-hmm. so true. Um, but I always say there's two reasons, probably more, as to why so many entrepreneurs are neurodivergent. The, the kind of positive reason is what Fran just said. But then the kind of latent, slightly overlooked reason is that it's really difficult to find a a traditional workplace that works for you as a neurodivergent person. And so it's almost like entrepreneurialism is what people end up doing because it's so difficult to cultivate a successful career in a traditional workplace as a neurodivergent person, particularly as a neurodivergent, intersectionally neurodivergent person and all um, meanings of the term intersectional.
2: Exactly. And hence why... There is a massive opportunity for corporates and large organisations to lean in and do what they can to support neurodivergent individuals from all backgrounds to maximise their potential and their opportunity. It's a win-win because what the, the, if they do that? You minimise the risks associated with entrepreneurship, and also. Your your company maximizes values and maximizes output. So the onus and the responsibility is these is on these organizations to be as inclusive as possible. And not just because it's a moral duty, but there's also a commercial benefit to them as well.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest the biggest um misconception is that it's seen as a charitable act. It's like it's not a charitable act. There's a there's an actual business incentive behind it.
2: And this is this is why i always push back and again this might be quite controversial i feel like when it comes to the different aspects of dna so your gender your ethnicities class even geography i think neurodiversity you could probably argue because of the strength and the psyche spiky profiles that there was a greater commercial reason for the neuro that to tap into neurodiversity, then all the, not to say the other ones are not important because they are, but there is a direct, okay. If I, if I tap into this neurodivergent community, I'm going to get these profiles of strengths that I don't actually have in my business and that cognitive diversity will actually make my company more innovative and give me a comparative advantage to my competitors. That would generate me more income in the future. And I don't think you can get that with any other social demographic. I may be wrong, but that's just my theory. I don't know how to
1: Well they're not separate that the, the, the point we're making is that they're not separate from Exactly. America. And this is true. So we've talked a lot about
0: intersectional approach to neurodiversity specifically within careers and like jobs and within big companies and things but how can we my little self not as someone who is hiring other people (laughs) how can I make sure that my approach to neurodiversity when I'm discussing neurodiversity is intersectional. Do you think it's making sure that we're centering different voices when we're discussing it across the neurodivergences, but also um, different kind of people profiles?
2: Yes, centering different diversity is important, but also allyship, going to spaces that are not like yours and just listening. You know, and on social media, it's really easy. It could be your support. Allyship can just be a like. It can be a comment. It can be sharing sharing something because those things improve algorithms, right? You know, it's getting time to, taking time to just listen, to read material that maybe not be your lived experience, but it's because you want to understand. It's not about necessarily going to these people that are different to you and saying, show me like how many there are people from all these backgrounds that are creating content like this all the time people have written books about their lived experience there are podcasts like this the articles it's taking the time to actually engage in and and digesting the content and reflecting on self and identifying that all of us we all have biases and we all have preferences that we will lean into and recognizing that and having that self awareness and doing the self learning and the reflective learning. So yes, the responsibility is not just on corporates, but among us as well, but also challenging bad behavior when we see it. So I've, I've heard people now when they're on DNI committees at their companies to actually question actually, why is it that we only have white males on this panel? Why do we just have white men and women? What about black people? What about people from different backgrounds? Why is it that we only have Oxford graduates in our team right here? What can we do differently? And asking those questions, and even if you get shut down, never being afraid to just ask the question, because if you get a retaliation to simply asking a question, it reveals something bad about the person that's giving you the retaliation that just means that they have a
1: lot of work to do. These conversations are never going to be comfortable. If, if all conversations are comfortable, then um, digging deep enough and also questioning your algorithm and question and kind of being critical about what you see in front of you as well it's on your point about engaging with different thought leaders on, or different people on social media. If all you're seeing is one particular type of person, you know, if 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 all the um, if all of your content is delivered by by people who look and sound the same, then that reveals a certain bias.
2: Well, it's also also having that honesty and transparency of where potential sorts of biases can come from. For example, the reason why I say that is recognizing self and your individual and where your biases can come from. I am a Christian and I've grown up in a conservative West African Christian household, but I've got the maturity to recognise that actually when it comes to the conversation about diversity and inclusion, especially with the LGBT community and stuff like that, on reflection, there is potential for certain level of biases and, and that means there's learning and unlearning that I need to do to make sure that I am inclusive, that I'm cool to my allies and supportive with everybody. Now, those experiences could be completely different to me, but the thing is what I've done, and that's just given an example of recognizing, okay, with my self-awareness, okay, I can now aware that these are things that I need to work on. And my question is, do people recognize?
0: Yeah, that self-awareness and looking, from other people's perspectives, is almost that first step that everyone needs.
2: Yeah, no matter how difficult, no matter how unsettling, no matter how uneasy, recognizing doing the doing that work, doing it internally, doing it online, doing it offline as well with people that you trust. Being able because I believe that there's certain questions that you can ask. There's a time and a place for different things. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it's and it's learning these things and working it through. And yes, it can be messy. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. As long as you're doing it from a loving place and a place that is not offensive, and you're and you're ready, you're ready to be. I think with these conversations, there always needs to be a degree of humility. Not oh, you got this wrong, you've offended me. No, I don't care, this is my opinion. I don't care if that, that's not how this works. It all I, I've always said that for me, as a Christian, I've always said that for me, everything I do needs to be centred because of love. So if I can't justify what I'm doing because I love, and I think diversity and inclusion needs to be based on that, right? If you're not doing it because you love your fellow man, well, what are you doing this for?
0: Yeah I love that that's such like a nice thought that that goes into everything that you do and that kind of leads me on to my next question do you have any like advice or words of wisdom for someone who's neurodivergent and is trying to take a more intersectional approach to what they do and how they discuss neurodiversity?
2: So my my word of advice with obviously what I've just said about letting love be the reason is a really important Mm -hmm. one but Also intersectionality, don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. It's going to be messy. It's going to be difficult and you have to, you have to be in it to win it. You have to be in it to gain it. And then also, I think you can't really start learning until you're talking and you're engaging with people that are completely different to you and learning from their experiences. Remember that on this thing about intersectionality gonna well, sound like I'm contradicting myself, but, um, and I, I'm i so thankful for Eileen, is that there's no identity that's more important than, than the other. It's about learning that everybody is different. Everybody's unique. Everybody has a unique sense of strength and privileges. And then also intersectionality is actually really important to remember that it's, there's no such thing as a one size fits all approach. There could be one policy that works really well for 10 people, but then the 11th person comes in and it's a useless policy. There needs to be flexibility. And um, we live in such a data-driven society with algorithms and everything like that. We've lost the art of nuance. And the word intersectionality reminds us that there's nuance. There's not just a binary zero and one or black and white there's loads of great a lot more shades than 50 i'll tell you that <laughs> and 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 people just have to remember that
0: yeah that <laughs> some very wise words Timmy. i feel like we've learned so much from you um just in this short chat and that's some good advice i think like leading with love and then considering the different different intersectionalities and there's different approaches for everyone but before we leave you is there anything you want to plug or promote or if people want to follow your work where can they find you
2: so they can find me on instagram as the black sick and on linkedin as timmy sotea or also the Black practice my website is coming out soon coming out soon and it's going to be on the blackness i can't give you a date yet by October, it should be out.
0: Well, thank you, Tumi. I feel like I've learned so much. It's been really, really helpful and I hope the listeners enjoy it too. I right, hope so,
2: Thank you so much for having me. And everybody, tune in to Neurotic. They're doing fantastic stuff today. Get involved when you can. Thanks, to
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Rethinking Neurodiversity. We're always open to your thoughts and feedback. So please feel free to email hello at noetic.health or get in touch through our social media.
1: Please follow, rate, like
0: and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. (laughs) See you next time.